You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. In this season, and in celebration of the release of my new book, The Failures of Forgiveness, which will be released this September by Princeton University Press, I talk to people who have challenged my thinking about what forgiveness is, its limits, and its powers. If you're wondering how to deal with conflict, relationships, or how to rebuild and repair your world, then this season is for you. In this episode, I talk with Miranda Fricker, who is a professor of philosophy at New York University, an honorary professor at the University of Sheffield. We talk about blame, forgiveness, and its baked in ambivalence, human fragility, and so much more. Hello, Miranda, and welcome to the Yummy Podcast. Hello, Maisha. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Miranda, how did you get interested in philosophy? Well, that's a good question. I guess sometimes I've thought about this, and I think I was very spoiled because my big sister did philosophy. And I didn't notice at the time at all the significance of this. And in a way, it's only, you know, years later, I look back and think, wow, my big sister was already doing this thing in which there were so few women, etc, etc. It must have completely normalized the possibility for me. And um, how many years apart are you all? We're 14 years apart. She's actually retired now. So she was already a teacher when I was an undergrad. You know, she she really kind of blazed a trail, I guess. I could just take it for granted that that was a subject I might do as an undergrad. I actually did philosophy and French literature. I wasn't super into philosophy on its own at any point. It kind of snuck up on me. I, I really loved literature and I really enjoyed philosophy. And then I went off and did a MA in women's studies, because I just got really interested in feminism, just from a personal point of view, you know, thinking about power and gender and trying to understand it and understand some of my frustrations and sort of criticisms of the world and to think that through, but not at all with a view to being an academic. But it was doing that at the University of Kent, which was kind of, it was an interdisciplinary MA. So we read feminist work in lots of different areas, but including philosophy. That's what got me as it were, re-sparked my interest in philosophy again, because I thought, oh, these are really interesting ideas. And I hadn't been exposed to any of these ideas about power and knowledge and so on in my undergrad degree, which is very much in sort of analytic philosophical literature. So it kind of, it was really feminism that sort of took me back to philosophy. And then I for ages just thought, I'll just do a doctorate and then I'll go and get a different job. But somehow I stayed. So let's talk about forgiveness. I want to start off talking about kind of what you consider to be mixed attitudes toward forgiveness. And I want to explore kind of two of those mixed attitudes. So the first one is the notion of of just idealizing forgiveness. So I want you to explain to us how and why do some people idolize forgiveness as particularly essential to moral life? In a certain way, I idealize it in that I think of it as profoundly valuable thing to be able to do. I suppose what I what I think is sort of essential to moral life is that we have some means of getting past wrongdoing. And forgiveness is one of those. I think it's important it's not the only one, and we can come to that. But so I think of it as a very beautiful thing to be able to do. If forgiveness is really freeing yourself of all feelings of 
you know, blame, resentment, hostility towards someone who's wronged you. That's a deeply valuable thing to be able to do, at least in some circumstances, especially if the alternative is carrying some resentments with you. So I, I think it's kind of a beautiful thing to be able to do. But of course, and I know we're going to discuss this, it's also something that, you know, one needs to be wise about, not do it too soon, too often, or, you know, instead of holding someone responsible. But I think it's very, very beautiful form of getting past wrongdoing and overcoming blame feelings. And I think a lot of people will agree with you. So they may be confused on why other people, or particularly philosophers, some philosophers mistrust forgiveness. So ex- explain to us why one would mistrust forgiveness. Yeah, I think um, I find it helpful to think about two different kinds of forgiveness that have been the broad. So conditional forgiveness where someone's wronged you and you don't forgive unless and until they've expressed remorse or apology to your satisfaction. Let's call that conditional forgiveness. By contrast, there's unconditional forgiveness, of course, where you just forgive someone up front, regardless of whether they've expressed any remorse or not, and regardless of whether you expect any apology. Now, those are two very different sorts of stances towards being wronged and towards the wrongdoer. And I think um, part of the worry, and again, although I said I, you know, in a way idealize forgiveness, I'm also very skeptical and worried and ambivalent about forgiveness for these reasons. Part of the worry is that forgiveness can come in as a apparent sort of alternative to holding someone responsible or accountable for what they've done. And I think with conditional forgiveness, the worry doesn't really arise because you wait until they've expressed remorse and really taken on board, you know, the moral meaning of what they've done, where I'm assuming it's kind of part of that, that there's some kind of commitment to not doing it again. And that's a really good way of holding each other accountable. But the really problematic aspect of it all comes in more with unconditional forgiveness, I think, where some people have felt that unconditionally forgiving someone who's wronged you is just a way of letting them off, just almost like condoning what they've done. And that looks very problematic, at least on the surface. But I think I'd like to defend it. It seems to be, and just tell me if I'm I'm reading you wrong here, it seems to be that these conflict and attitudes about forgiveness, and I'm going to quote you here, where you say they both rightly inspire ambivalence about forgiveness. And I wonder if you can explain a little bit more, because it seems like in your uh, explanation, um, it seems like only one kind or yes. one kind of attitude about forgiveness and, and you know, rightly inspires ambivalence. But it seems to be that you take that both kinds can inspire ambivalence. So explain why. Yes, I do. So I think there's a kind of obvious way in which we might be ambivalent about unconditional forgiveness that conditional forgiveness doesn't inspire, and that's to do with the letting people off aspect of things. But there's a different respect in which both kinds of forgiveness might inspire a kind of ambivalent attitude. And that's more to do with what I think of in terms of a internal tendency to deteriorate into forms of moral control and moralism. So if you've wronged someone and they let's imagine them going in for conditional forgiveness first of all they might insist say you're sorry no you're not sorry enough say you're even more sorry I really want to hear just how bad you've been before I'm going to forgive you and because that person is coming from a place of hurt for what you've done to them they are as it were intrinsically at risk of overplaying their hand of of, as it were engaging in a kind of interpersonal punishment tell me how bad you've been in order, you know, before they hand you the gift of forgiveness. And I think when we come from a place of moral wounding, it's difficult to avoid that. I mean, I think we can, but there's a kind of drag in that direction. So we have to be careful about it. Now, 
you might think that can't be present in the case of unconditional forgiveness, because I've already said in that case, we don't make the person apologize or express remorse before we forgive, we just forgive anyway. But there I think the risk of kind of moral condescension or moral control can sneak in by another route, which is something to do with, if we imagine me, you know, someone's wronged me, and I'm thinking, no, I just want to save the relationship, and they're not at all sorry, but I'm just going to forgive them up front, and I'm going to tell them, don't worry, I am I am going to forgive you ahead of time. And I'm, as it were, acting so magnanimous, so generous, so caught up with myself that I'm not really asking them anything about how they perceive the situation or whether they even agree with my construction of it. And I'm so busy saying, I forgive you for betraying our friendship because you told me that lie. And they might think, well, okay, I told you a lie, but there was a reason for it. And anyway, I don't think it's a case of betraying the friendship, but I'm kind of not letting them get a word in, if you sort of mean, because I'm so busy trying to summon up the moral generosity to forgive them up front, regardless of the fact that they're not saying sorry, that I'm in a way not being dialogical enough, not conversational enough. I'm looking inwards, focusing on my own feelings of resentment and trying to rid myself of them and be all big and grand and generous. And I think there's a kind of control and moralism in that too, but it's highly disguised. And I think that a lot of people who've been on the receiving end of forgiveness when they don't really agree with the construction of what they've done, and maybe they don't even think they've done anything wrong, they feel that weight of the condescension and the kind of self-congratulatory moral magnanimity on the part of the grand unconditional forgiver. So that's a different deterioration, but it's another kind of moral control where you you insist on a certain moral interpretation of what's happened and you're not being dialogical enough. And I think both in the conditional case, as with the unconditional case, the kind of root cause is the failure to be dialogical or conversational enough. So conditional case, I'm saying, no, 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 tell me how bad you are. I already know how bad you were. That was terrible what you did, but I'm not really listening to you. I'm just insisting you deliver my interpretation before I forgive you. And the same in the unconditional case. I'm just not not asking you for your view. I'm just so busy being generous that I, I'm already happy with my construction of what you did to me. So I think in both cases, the ambivalence there arises from a, a failure to listen, if you like, a kind of a sort of um, solipsism about the nature of the moral wrong. Like I know what it was, and I'm not looking for alternative points of view. I want you to talk about the other deteriorations, because you describe in your work that there's three different kinds. And, um, and I'm just going to quote you here, deterioration into one or another form of bad faith. And you have kind of listed, quote, other directed social constructive power, which I think you were alluding to, but also backdoor blame. And also I'm going to cite you here, <laughs> self-directed polypsis involved in forceful air and blame feelings, end quote. So for those who probably are not analytic philosophers, really want to make sense of, of the other kinds of deteriorations. I wonder if you can I- explain that a little bit more. Yeah, certainly. In a way, I've sort of collapsed them all in in what I said before. So let me kind of draw them out separately in the way you suggest. So one way of winding up in bad faith is the kind of sneaking in of a kind of moral controlling attitude, which is to do with, you know, I know what you did, and I'm going to try and get you to acknowledge it no matter what. And I'm kind of, you know, just determined to hear what I want to hear before I can forgive you. So that's what I was describing in connection with Uh, conditional forgiveness. So that would be one kind. The second kind that you alluded to, and I call it backdoor blame, that's something specifically to do with the communication of forgiveness. And again, um, can affect either conditional or unconditional. So if you imagine a, a situation where somebody's wronged you, and you know, you're in 
in conversation and you are telling them that you forgive them for, let's say you forgive them for having betrayed your friendship, or maybe you don't even label the wrong. Maybe you just tell them, I forgive you for what you did to me. Now, there's a sense in which forgiveness is meant to be all about getting past the wrong, not really, as it were, using the wrong as a stick to beat the person with anymore. You're renouncing all that. But if if one says, I forgive you, the funny thing about that mode of speech is that it has a presupposition or a precondition. It assumes that you've done something bad to me that was blameworthy for which I need to forgive you. And so there's a sense in which when I say the words, I forgive you, even if I don't go on dot, 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 and say for that terrible thing you did to me, I'm still in a backdoor way alluding to the fact that you did something wrongful, something that requires forgiveness. And so putting it loosely, if I go on and on about how much I'm forgiving you for something, that's another way of going on and on about how you wronged me. And of course, it's a matter of tone. And uh, it can take us by surprise, we can think we're really trying to forgive. But as it were, we're not quite managing to let go of our feeling of hurt. And so we still feel like we've got to kind of allude to it a lot <laughs> in order to put down a flag and say, yeah, you really did wrong me, even though I'm now forgiving you, like I said I was. Right. And right. so that's what I meant by backdoor blame. It's, uh, it's coming in, it necessarily comes in as a presupposition, but it can easily be that the presupposition is louder than the forgiveness you're officially expressing. So that was the second kind. And as I say, that can that can be the case, whether it's conditional or unconditional. And then the third kind, um, what I call self-directed prolepsis. So just to explain my use of this odd word prolepsis, when something's proleptic, it simply means future directed. But in this sort of situation, it particularly, uh, I'm using a sort of theoretical construction of it, which means treating someone as if they already had a certain feature, thereby causing them to come to have that feature. So if you treat others as if they're irresponsible, they might be more likely to actually come to be less responsible. Think of bringing up children, for instance. A lot of our social interactions have this self-fulfilling or self-social uh, uh, constructive power in them. And I think actually with, you know, with blaming and forgiving, one of the good things about these responses to wrongdoing is that we are implicitly treating other people as responsible. When you blame, as well as when you forgive, you treat them as someone who could have could have done better, who knows better. <laughs> and um, so that's a, a piece of treating them as if they're better than their current behavior is making them seem to be. So that's also a kind of little piece of interpersonal social construction. I think it's one of the really helpful kinds that proleptic aspects or social constructive aspects of moral response can help keep us all on on board help keep us all kind of on track morally speaking but it can go wrong <laughs> like i'm always obsessed with how things go wrong or how things <laughs> kind of have the seeds of their own corruption built into them because i just find it so fascinating you know these interactions that have self-fulfilling or some social constructive power it's a power and all powers can be well used or misused or misused by accident or misused on purpose and so the third kind of deterioration I was interested in is a kind of proleptic behavior, which is not directed to others in the way I was just describing with blaming or forgiving others, but can be directed to myself. So that I am 
if someone has wronged me and I'm really trying to forgive them, again, maybe they've said sorry and I really should, or maybe they haven't and I have my own reasons for really wanting to forgive them unconditionally anyway. It doesn't matter. I've got these blame feelings that I'm struggling with and I want to overcome. I want to get past in myself. One of the really usual techniques we use, and which is good, it's helpful, is a kind of self-imposed self-construction. So I, I behave as if I'm already a future version of myself. I behave as if, I, I act normal, is what I'm trying to say. I behave as if I don't have those blame feelings. I'm sort of suppressing them, I'm kind of ignoring them and hoping that if we just carry on acting like colleagues and friends, I'll just get past it because I really want to get past it. That can be a really good tactic in how to move on, how to handle one's residual blame feelings. But of course, it's got its own self-deception or its own tendency towards self-deception or bad faith built into it because here I am so busy ignoring my real blame feelings that I've still got because of that bad thing my colleague did to me. I'm I'm not focusing on them or kind of working them out. I'm just busy acting normal. And so it starts, if it doesn't work, then it's just a piece of failed repression a piece of, um, you know, I'm just kidding myself at the end of the day. And that's, we do that, I think, quite often out of the best will in the world. We're trying to get past our blame feelings, but we don't succeed. And so our blame feelings kind of come out in other ways, like we fly off a handle in rage at some tiny irrelevant thing that same person does. And it's, you know, it's really about what they did five years ago and not about this thing they've just done five minutes ago. And I think we all recognize that. Goodness knows therapists must recognize that. But I, it comes from what can be a really essential and well-functioning kind of piece of emotional self-discipline. You you in effect repress your blame feelings to bring it about that you don't have them anymore. And sometimes it will fail us. That, that leads me to my next question about how can we escape these deteriorations? And particularly if they're kind of rooted in bad faith, I wonder if the answer, there's one answer to all three, <laughs> or if there, there are different kind of answers to each one. So how can we escape it? Is it possible? Yeah, I wonder. I mean, I like our flawed humanity. And I, I, I suspect, again, because these tendencies for deterioration are kind of built into the well-functioning aspects of our practices, you know, so the effort to exert a moral influence on someone who's morally wounded you is a good thing. I want them to get it. I'm trying to get them to see, you know, I'm trying, in a way, I'm trying to exert some power, exert some control. And it's built into that, that it might deteriorate. So it's a question of balance. And so I do think it's not so difficult to characterize an ideal, especially if you're allowed to say, helpfully vague things like it's a balance, <laughs> maybe it's a mean between two extremes, or, you know, you can just say some, some kind of rules of the game, like, well, be aware in case you're just kidding yourself, or, you know, notice if you think you're getting excessively angry about something else, it's probably an indication that you're still angry about that thing five years ago, then we can sort of, uh, you know, have a reasonably robust conception of what the ideal is, but whether we can achieve it is another matter. And maybe part of me quite likes that we can't probably achieve it because I like human flaws and I feel like there wouldn't be any good movies or good plays <laughs> or good novels <laughs> if we weren't flawed and you know like our practices built into the good stuff about us is a risk of it going wrong and that's part of the human condition that I kind of like so I, I think it's really helpful to formulate 
ideals, but I don't, I wouldn't really want to live in a world where everyone was perfect in that way. I like living in a world where we can help each other get over things and realize when we've gone wrong and learn from our mistakes, but we're going to make new ones. I want to, I want to talk about that. So I'm thinking about moral powers that we can have as victims and, and forgiveness being a more power that we have. But I want to think about power in another sense as well when it comes to forgiveness. And you kind of know my interest. I'm very you know, interested in, in why certain kinds of context brings about a need for forgiveness, particularly in a social political space. And I just wonder, I mean, you, you, you explained, you know, that you kind of came through to philosophy through your interest in feminism. So I just wonder if you could help us think about power as far as social power and forgiveness and if when we combine those two, and I'm not just talking about bad faith, I'm talking about intentional stuff. When we combine those two, how that can also create a mistrust, mistrust and forgiveness. And if you think there's a way out of that, or if we're just prone, our fragility is prone to engage in abuse of those particular powers, particularly when it unequals powers, et cetera, et cetera, when it comes to forgiveness. So I'm just asking you to think about power in another way as it relates to forgiveness and help us think through why that makes forgiveness all the more ambivalent. Absolutely. And I, you know, social power, political power, as soon as you put these interpersonal reactions to wrongdoing, blaming and forgiving in context of inequality, let alone structural oppression, you've got a whole other set of problems and deteriorations and, and corruptions. I mean, it seems right to use the word corruption right. in its sort of full sense in that context, ways that you've explored in your work. I mean, so for instance, if you've got one group who regularly mistreats another group, it'll be very convenient for the more powerful group to cultivate uh, an ideology where you know, unconditional forgiveness is a very valuable thing, a very laudable thing. And what they are trying to do is sweep their wrongs under the carpet, as it were, and make it seem morally undignified to blame <laughs> and to not forgive. And of course, that's just using, it's a piece of moral ideology. And, you know, in, in the context of uh, feminist Christian writing, there's been quite about a lot about this too, because in Christian tradition, or a certain set of Christian traditions, there's a strong valuation of unconditional forgiveness, even if the idea is ultimately only only God does the real forgiving, humans will do their best to emulate that on earth and God may forgive through them. And some feminist Christian writers have said, you know, this this really does function like a piece of ideology when you look at how much sexual exploitation and so on there's been in the church in various uh, dimensions. We should be very suspicious of this idea that we're all supposed to forgive up front. Now, that's, I quite agree with that. That's because, you know, we're seeing ethical ideas be used and misused for political purposes and to prop up and sustain uh, oppressive social power structures, either within an institution or more broadly across society. So I think it's disciplinary functions of ideologies of blaming and forgiving when you should blame, who can blame and so on, absolutely become full on political weapons is perhaps putting it a bit, a bit strongly only because they're weapons in disguise, you know, tools, political tools. And so I think um, we need to be 
very aware of that in, in, in ways that you've explored in your own work. There's also another aspect of social power that comes in in interpersonal ways because you know, I've for a long time been interested in how prejudice can depress people's level of credibility that they receive when they say all sorts of different things, but in, including expressions of blame, for instance. And there's a lot of history about how I was interested in reading a book about the build up to the French Revolution, for instance, so 18th century France, norms of which social groups could express anger of the bl- of the fault finding blaming kind in particular anger at perceived insult or slight was absolutely socially regimented so you've got noble men noble women non-nobles in general children these were sort of sort of broad categories in which this particular historian was setting out the what I would think of as credibility patterns. And he was arguing that really one of the interesting shifts in social power in the build-up to the French Revolution where ideas of people being able, and particularly men, being able to gain social status, so non-noble men through having a craft or set of skills gained something in social status even though they still didn't count as noblemen. And at that time, they started to be able to, in a socially intelligible way, express express to noblemen the kind of anger that we might think of as blame, you know, expression of anger in response to perceived slight or insult or being mistreated or being condescended to in a way that hadn't been available before and that women still couldn't. And at that time, women, even noble women among noble, uh, as it were, crowds, when they would express this kind of moral anger, it was usually cast as comical, because it's comical that someone of lower status would express that kind of uh, moral anger towards someone of higher status. And so that happened across gender within nobility and among men upwards (laughs) between non-noble and noble. So I found that fascinating because it's such a kind of rigidified version of what you or I might be interested in still operating all over the place in a very complex, more informal way across race, class, gender, and indeed many other things depending on the context. And so I'm, I'm, I continue to be very interested in how social power expressing itself in terms of prejudice can mean that some people in some contexts for certain kinds of wrongs cannot express those wrongs and either be properly understood or have their word taken seriously. And of course, we've certainly, you know, accusations of sexual assault have been one sort of very super prominent set of examples in in recent history with the Me Too movement and so on, trying to change that. Yes, social power is all around and it can have this very broad, more rigid kind of structural form. And it can also operate in this much more kind of micro, super context sensitive way affecting both credibility and just how much uptake somebody's blame gets in a given context. At the beginning of our conversation, you noted forgiveness is, is one way to kind of mend or recover from, from wrongdoing. And you noted that it's not the only way. So tell us more. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I think, um, you know, forgiveness is a very demanding interpersonal moral engagement with someone who's wronged you. At least that's certainly how I think of it. You know, if, if you're trying to forgive someone, you're 
you're attempting to overcome your blame feelings towards a particular individual for what they did to you, either because of the particular nature of their apology, which is giving you reasons you think to forgive them, or just because you're committed to unconditional forgiveness anyway. And this involves a great deal of focus and time and emotional intention engagement with them, even if you don't speak to them. All your attempts to shift your emotional attitudes are focused on them and what they did to you. And I think it's very important to recognize that People might often be wronged by someone, either because the wrong is so severe or for other more circumstantial reasons, like it's just not worth their time giving all that focus, which means that it's a good thing there are other ways of getting past these wrongs. For instance, blanking the whole thing. I mean, I actually, if it's a fairly trivial, I mean, relatively trivial case, I'm a big fan of just forgetting about it. I just think that that's an, an essential part of not expending too much moral energy in your life. Right. Um, so obviously, again, like everything, there's a balance there. You know, sometimes I might think, oh, I'm capable of just forgetting about it. But really, I'm actually not forgetting about it. And I'm busy trying. It's not really working. And perhaps I need to have a conversation with them after all. But it can work. And so I think that's a good response sometimes in some contexts. But equally, at the other end of the scale, in cases of um, very grave wrongdoing, people might well feel they do not want, even imaginatively, to morally engage with that person. But they do want to heal and to not continue to just feel in this wounded or full of hate state. Edward St. Aubin is a wonderful writer, kind of autobiographical novels he's written called the Patrick Melrose novels, five volumes. And it, in brief, he there's there's a wonderful kind of patch of it where he's talking about his attitude towards his father who's now dead and his father sexually abused him when he was a child and he hadn't talked about it to anyone until he was an adult and after his father died uh, there's a certain sort of prompting of rethinking how he might be able to recover and go on with his life and there's wonderful passages in this autobiographical novel about how he is not interested in forgiveness. For, for a start, he's not religious, but in any case, he doesn't want to give that to his father. He's still kind of, at this point, he wants to get rid of his hatred for his father and he wants to be able to grow up. He says something like, I, I need to stop being that little boy and I need to get past this hatred. I don't want to just keep hating forever. Otherwise, I'll never be rid of him. You know, his dying makes no difference. I'll just need to be never rid of what he did to me unless I find a way. But I'm not interested in this whole forgiveness game. I think, and his friend says, so what are you going to do about it then? He says, well... I don't know, but you know, I'm not religious, so I'm, you know, I'm going to try and do the modern equivalent, the secular equivalent of religion, which is to narrative fatigue. He says, "I'm going to talk mm. and talk and talk, and it's got to have something to do with telling the truth. Otherwise, I wouldn't have just told you, would I?" He says, and sure enough, you know, five volumes of autobiography. I don't know if that's enough. He felt the narrative fatigue he hoped for, and he was hoping for a kind of narrative fatigue which also enabled him to have other perspectives on his father, not to get rid of the perspective of his father and of, as an abuser, but to have other perspectives too. And one of the things he wants is to be able to make sense of some of the ways he knows he's very like his father, not as an abuser, but just in other ways. And so to try to have a more complex picture of his father and his relationship with him was one of the things he hoped to achieve through all this truth-telling. So that's a long way of saying truth, testimony, having someone to talk to to figure out what on earth this calamity in one's life means. 
is a obviously therapeutic way of getting past wrongdoing, which need not involve forgiveness. So for some people, they, they hope that it does, but it need not. And I think that's very, very important. And then the, lastly, just to emphasize a point that you know many people have made, and in particular in, the, in connection with appalling, broad scale wrongs like genocide or social conflict, political conflict, civil war, and so on, when whole states or sections of, of nations need to get past terrible wrongdoing. It may well be that efforts at reconciliation are absolutely essential and that reconciliation involves gradually, as Margaret Urban Walker puts it, gradually rebuilding those relations of trust between neighbours and so on. So a sort of micro rebuilding of those relations of trust, but it need not at any point involve forgiveness. It needn't involve that moral attention and that shift of attitudes towards an individual or group for what they did to me or my group, wherein one attempts to expunge all the blame feelings. That, that, that's not necessary for reconciliation and finding a new way of life together and rebuilding ordinary everyday trust. So I think that's really important too, that reconciliation need not involve forgiveness. you enjoy doing outside of philosophy ah lots of things i i um it's all gonna sound so kind of um tiny and absurd but i really love cooking okay okay <laughs> and um i used to, i don't get a chance to do this much anymore but when i uh, and my family lived in sheffield in the north of england i was four years in that lovely philosophy department and i still have a affiliation with it i'm happy to say sheffield is a a large-ish uh, just in the north of england sort of top of the midlands uh city but it's absolutely on the edge of a giant national park called the peak district which is mainly derbyshire though sheffield itself is in south yorkshire and what i one of the things i loved about living there was that we had this incredible countryside literally on our doorstep. I mean, you could walk from the edge of town in Sheffield where we lived through parks and then into the wild countryside. But it was kind of, if you just drove for 10 minutes or you could catch a bus, you could be in the wild countryside literally in 10 minutes. And I love doing big, long walks in the countryside. We have a dog and going with our kids was was really really lovely and I we don't have a car in New York and so we don't get around in that way and I slightly regret that I just going to go to the park with my dog like everyone else but I do I really love hiking and so occasionally in the US I've tried to kind of do that and had some wonderful hiking experiences but it's definitely on my to-do list to discover more parts of the US where you can go hiking and you know hopefully not meet a bear <laughs> I'm a bit of a worst <laughs> you know the worst that would happen in Derbyshire was you know a slightly slightly kind of scary looking spider which you know is definitely not going to do anything to you or a worm whereas <laughs> I remember I visited Arizona and went on a trail and seeing all the signs that said you know beware rattlesnakes and tarantulas I was like oh my goodness what am I gonna do you know, I'm gonna wear some really long socks and walk really fast <laughs> so I'm a bit of a pathetic English woman abroad but still maybe I'll gradually get braver I, I really love just being in the countryside you know for a few hours and then um uh, if I was in England you, you could go and have a warm pint of beer but I'm very happy with a with a, a a cold beer from the fridge at the end of one of those that'll do me just fine well most people think of philosophers they think of, of people in their armchairs thinking of things that have nothing to do with the real world and clearly your published work goes beyond the stereotype 
But interestingly, your service work does too. So I just wonder if you can tell us as much as allowed about your work. And I'm going to, you know, put a quote, I'm quoting here, expert moral philosopher, because that's like the title that you're given on a government appointed Thank advisory panel. <laughs> That's how I always put yes. it. Expert moral philosopher. Tell, tell us more about your work on the advisory government appointed advisory panel. Yes, thank you. So it's called the Spoliation Advisory Panel. Spoliation, I literally hadn't heard that word, I think, before before I kind of was uh, invited to interview for this position some years ago. And it think of the, the idea of spoils of war. So spoliated cultural objects, like art objects, are cultural and art objects that have basically been stolen or otherwise wrongfully purloined by an invading force, or in this case, um, the Nazis, because that's what this particular panel is set up to uh, deal with. Um, so um, in order that the heirs of those from whom these valuable objects were spoliated might make a claim after the fact and have the object restored or have its status as belonging to their family correctly labeled on the museum wall if that's the settlement that's come to and so on so what what i belong to is um it's called a and i quote and quotes panel of experts and it's uh, appointed by the secretary of state and uh it's composed of art historians historians lawyers and other sorts of experts and they've long had the habit of having a moral philosopher on there too why because otherwise the claim made and it, it doesn't have a it's an advisory panel to uh, as it were deal with something called the holocaust return of cultural objects act which was passed in 2009 which enabled people to heirs of people from whom such objects have been spoliated to make these claims and so the panel i belong to looks at all the facts around the uh, loss of the object and comes to a, a piece of advice, a determination about what should happen. But it's not legally binding. It's not meant to be a legal process, though it is largely has, has a great deal of legal expertise and the two chairs are, are judges. So part of the hope of having moral philosopher on there is that there won't be a limitation to legal reasons only. And this is partly because you could have a case where a claimant had, you know, supposing their family had had, let's say, paintings or valuable furniture from their family. Very often these are, you know, usually these are Jewish families, but it's that's not, as it were, the constraint. The constraint is it's a spoliation under the Nazification period 33 to 45 in Germany. And supposing you were the heir to a family that had lost a lot of objects, part of the backstory might be that under the pressures of Nazification, um, you know, there'd been a kind of forced sale because of the uh, horrendous taxes that were starting to be charged by the Nazis, that you had to sell your family belongings because of the anti-Semitic anti taxes, or it could be simply that they were stolen, any number of things. And so... It m might be, however, that someone wanted to make a claim where they didn't quite have a legal right for the object to be returned, and yet there might be some residual moral reason to think that they had a very strong claim to it. And then since this isn't only a legal process, part of the conclusion might be, well, there isn't a strict legal entitlement here, you know, the muse museum uh, got this painting under all the proper 
pieces of research and so on, but there is something a little bit dodgy about how what happened in the beginning, there's a connection with Nazification, perhaps as a moral claim, and then that can be put to the museum uh, and it can be negotiated. And so that that's part of my role to look out for those things or, or indeed just to look out for moral aspects of a case which would be in addition to a, a legal argument. So that's that's why they always have a moral philosopher on, on the panel. I think it's a it's a good idea since it's not intended to be a, a strictly legal process. But it's a very valuable thing, as I'm sure anyone would agree, to that as it were, however long after the fact, families who lost, and it's not just about money, you know, it's about the wrong that was done. Uh, they may have been family heirlooms that were much loved and were taken, and which are not, you know, haven't landed through a rightful route into the hands of a museum. We deal only with, um, you know, British uh, national museums. And museums all museums do not want to hang on to objects that might turn out to have been spoliated anyway. And museums uh, all try to do their provenance research properly. But of course, occasionally there's a blip and you, you don't know exactly what the, the murky history of that first bit of the chain was under notification. And so you can get slips and mistakes are made and uh, museums... Uh, almost always just want to do the right thing. Occasionally, there's a, a difficulty because something about the small museums, uh, uh, so a mission statement or deeds legally prevent it from returning some of its objects, and then there have to be workarounds. But on the whole, it's a, it's a smooth process, and everyone, everyone wants the same thing. You noted your love for literature, and I wonder if you can just recommend two books that you think depict human fragility in the most beautiful of ways? There's one that immediately comes to mind, which I read not that long ago. Um, so I don't know whether I'll manage to come up with a second, but maybe while I'm speaking, I'll think of another one. But I have, in the past few years, become a, such a... Sorry, there goes my dog. I hope you... There he goes, don't. there he goes. <laughs> Mine uh, should bark pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, I discovered the writing of Rachel Cusk, who wrote the outline trilogy and many other books besides I actually love her nonfiction too but when I read outline a couple of years ago she writes in a very spare as it were modernist way with lots of illusion nothing is really explained in a way it's very matter-of-fact and straightforward but everything that the novel is about is unsaid <laughs> and she's looking to try and write about a certain kind of fragile female experience. And I think she does it brilliantly. The way she kind of discloses her central character to the reader is all by implication. So we have the central character sitting next to someone on a plane who chats away <laughs> and we get all his stories. And then the stories of someone else he met who told this story and we get the main you know, narrator character just occasionally chipping in and saying some direct question or whatever. So we're getting to know her only in outline through getting lots of dialogue or um, or indeed sort of monologue rather by the characters that are around her and as it were making the shape that's going to be the residual outline that we carry with us. And uh, anyway, I just uh, find it really, really compelling and beautiful and subtle and disciplined and indirect in a way and elusive that I in a way that I really love so yeah Rachel Cusk outline and outline is just the first in the 
three that make the trilogy. The others are Transit and Kudos. So there's one. Oh, and I'm not sure I can think of another one. Let's see. I need to, could I give you a, a play? Sure, sure. Because long, I also not so long ago saw Long Day's Journey Into Night by Eugene O'Neill. Okay. A famous American playwright, and I'd never seen it or read it before. And I'm absolutely in love with it. It's so, I, I'm partly mining it for all sorts of terrible interpersonal deteriorations of blaming and forgiving. Talk about backdoor blame. There's addiction in the family. They're all stuck in these terrible cycles. They love each other, but they can't escape from these terrible, entrenched, blame-filled, guilt-filled, self-blame, other-blame-filled ways of relating to one another. And the whole thing just kind of is like an endless implosion of a family in a way that's very beautiful and tragic. It's actually very autobiographical too, I learned afterwards. So there you go, Eugene O'Neill, Long Day's Journey into Night, fragility, endless different forms of fragility and in a way a kind of pessimism that I really admire because as I say, love isn't enough. These people love each other but it's just going to carry on going down and down and down into the night. (laughs) And there's something very lucid and tragic about that that I find very beautiful. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, Miranda. I I learned a lot. Me too. Thank you so much, Maisha. I look forward to to seeing you again in the next conversation we have, which I hope might be about your forthcoming book, which I'll look forward to reading. Thank you so much. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.